Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting March 26th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. The baseball season is already underway, so this week on the podcast we'll talk about some baseball-related science with editor Dan Gordon and statistician Shane Jensen, who are not Joe Gordon and Jackie Jensen. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Dan Gordon is the managing editor at Dana Press, which publishes books and articles about the brain. It's part of the Dana Foundation, which supports brain research. Gordon edited a new volume that looks at baseball and the brain. I called him at his office in Washington, D.C. Mr. Gordon, good to talk to you today. Hi, Steve. Good to talk to you. Inside the Heads of Players and Fans is a subtitle. The title is Your Brain on Cubs. Tell me about the uh, the origins of this book. How'd this book happen? Well, it arose from uh, actually a, a pretty sad memory, for uh, especially for Cubs fans and for the baseball fans who, who feel for us, and that was the postseason in 2003 when the Cubs appeared to be just moments away from making it to the World Series for the first time in decades, and then it all fell apart. Um, it was the following season when I was back at Wrigley Field for the for the first time since that happened that I thought, what is it that uh, that keeps me coming back for more, even though uh, my team has disappointed me? What is it that keeps me loyal to this ball club? And the more I thought about it, uh, you know, I work for a foundation that that does uh, AIDS neuroscience research, and so I work on publications related to the brain. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, really, there's uh, something to to look at here with what it is in our brains that keeps us coming back. And the uh, the idea kind of developed from there because, of course, there are things in the players' brains that uh, that make them able to, to pitch a ball, to hit a ball, and to, to play the game. And so as the idea kind of expanded, we, we kept I kept the uh, the Cubs in the title because they're my team of choice, but it really applies to, uh, to fans of any team, players of any for any team, um, and not even necessarily just in baseball. Even we Yankee fans suffer occasionally. On occasion. Well, there's there's a chapter also about the joy of victory, so maybe the Yankee fans can especially relate to that. <laughs> well, not lately. But <laughs> <laughs> True enough. Uh, so what was the reaction at the Dana Foundation, a serious uh, funder of, of neuroscience research, to, to the idea of this book? They, uh, they supported the idea. I think... Um, that there was recognition here that this is something that could kind of get the word out about the brain to a wider audience than we uh, than we sometimes get with some of our books. Um, we we publish for a lay audience, but uh, some of our books do tend to be on the on the more serious side. But uh, what could be more fun than sports and uh, and trying to figure out what explains either ourselves if we're big fans or or the people that we interact with who are who are big fans who we might want to try to understand better. There's a uh, a thing that comes up a couple of times at least in the book. Uh, regarding mirror neurons in the brain. Can you tell us about the mirror neurons and, and what they do in terms of being a fan watching sports? Well, the idea is that uh, mirror neurons have been, the existence of mirror neurons has been proved in, in monkeys and non-human primates. Um, and there's a pretty strong theory that they also exist in humans. And the idea is that when we are um, watching somebody for example, pick up a, a coffee mug, we are probably um, replicating that action in our brains. And so there are a couple of mentions in the book. One is that uh, in the area of, of practice, there is research that indicates that watching others perform an action can actually help us learn that action. That's been shown. Um, there's there's uh, evidence of that for dancers learning to dance. 
that they, they can learn not just by doing the movements, but also by watching others do those movements. And so that idea has been applied to, uh, to baseball in a couple of ways. One is, um, first of all, the players can, can help uh, develop their abilities that way. But then also, even we, the fans, just watching, can sometimes mirror um, even the movements, but also some of the emotions that, that we experience when we're at a ball game. Is there any chance that the um, the mirror neuron phenomenon explains the what I consider to be the completely uh, misguided notion by a lot of fans that they could actually do what the players do? <laughs> Perhaps. Well, the, the interesting thing is that uh, mirror neuron theory suggests that in our brains, at least, we can. Um, then there's the problem of actually translating that into the physical ability, which, uh, as we all know, doesn't quite happen the way we, we might wish it did. Yeah, I was watching a spring training game, and Alex Rodriguez backhanded a short hop about 30 feet behind third base on the foul line, turned and threw to first and got the guy. And I remember thinking, the average fan probably thinks he could probably do that too. Whereas if he was standing, if, if you just gave him the ball where Rodriguez was standing, he couldn't throw it to first base, let alone make the rest of the play happen. Right. Maybe that's one of the things that, that keeps us interested in baseball is the, the idea that uh, we're living vicariously through the experts that we're watching on the screen or in, at the game. And we're also living an emotional life vicariously uh, in being involved. I mean, I think it's baseball is soap opera for guys and, <laughs> and, and for a lot of women, too. But, you know, it's this daily melodrama that plays out in various ways. And I think that's part of what makes it fun. But uh, you, you get into the minds of the players and the minds of the fans a lot in the book. For example, uh, there's there's the chapter on why Casey actually struck out. And I like some of the conclusions at the end of that chapter that uh, go into uh, making this kind of evaluation of why he struck out in the poem. Right. Um, those, there are a couple of, of very interesting and well-done chapters on um, the brains of ball players, and that that's one of them. Why why Casey struck out, and uh, the neuroscientists who contributed those chapters have some really interesting insights into how the brains of ball players, how they become experts at what they do, and they talk about how um, in the brain of an expert, those experts are actually probably using less of their brains when they perform an act, and it becomes kind of ingrained, and so they are able to fine tune their brains in a way and really focus. Um, and then in that, in the chapter about why Casey struck out, the, uh, some of the theories are that he was distracted by, by the crowd and by, and by other things where a true expert might, might keep his focus. So, uh, there's a lot of really interesting, interesting material on how the players become experts at what they do and then apply that. Uh, there's a chapter on hitting the ball, which is pretty amazing. What the, what they've come up with in that chapter is basically that players have to decide whether to swing before the ball is even pitched because there isn't enough time from when the ball leaves the pitcher's hands to actually react after that and decide whether to swing. So um, what I take from that is basically they start out with, yes, I'm going to swing, and the only thing they have time to decide is a very quick change of heart and, uh, you know, the hold up before they follow through. So that's a really interesting, really interesting um, look at how the brain is involved in, in that process. And they get so much information that the average fan probably is not aware of before the pitcher even releases the ball, just based on the pitcher's wind-up, the position of the arm, etc. 
Exactly, and also their own past experiences, um, perhaps in a particular count um, or with that particular pitcher or both. And that's really the key to why the player may actually use less of his brain than uh, the novice player or the fan might in a similar situation. You can use less of your brain because you have this incredibly developed database of experience that you draw upon. Right, right. And the, the I think the average fan, I know I certainly had never thought about that um, in, in this way before, that really it's the brain that's that's making those calls before before the pitcher, perhaps even before the pitcher goes into his windup. Right, right. Also dependent on the game situation. Right. Uh, there's a really fascinating chapter in the book that describes a subject that does not get discussed at all because, of course, we're so drug conscious in sports and especially baseball right now. The steroid controversy in baseball is just paramount in the minds of fans in the press. But there's no discussion about something that there's this chapter is about, and that's the neurological enhancement possibilities of drugs in sports, down to caffeine as a, as an enhancement. Right. The question is, where do you draw the line with things like that? Um, the chapter is interesting. It's contributed by a bioethicist who takes kind of an unorthodox look at uh, brain enhancers and seems to suggest, at least in one in one spot, that they could be good for baseball. But the real question is... Um, is there a level playing field? That's the real issue. Um, and so there's a, a kind of very ethical um, aspect to that. Um, do all the players have the same the same access to things? Um, and there is also this this idea of well, where do you draw the line? Um, caffeine is a stimulant. Do you ban caffeine? Do you ban um, cannabis? Do you ban other other drugs that might um, have at least theoretically have an effect on uh, reaction time. So it's a very interesting uh, concept that uh, that does come into play and that really has stayed below the radar. There's been a little bit of talk about it, but it has not uh, been very, very loud discussion about uh, enhancers that would affect the brain, and that may be the next, the next wave, so to speak. And there's the amazing revelation, to me at least, that Hank Aaron performed on amphetamines part of the time early in his career. Right, there are a lot of uh, a lot of historical um, examples of ball players who um, who did take brain altering drugs uh, or brain enhancing drugs, at least so they thought, and um, and you don't hear about those very much. So it's kind of a kind of an interesting thing to look at. The last chapter in the book is called "It Isn't Whether You Win or Lose; It's Whether You Win." Yep, <laughs> agony and ecstasy in the brain, and and one of the things in that chapter that was pretty amusing to me was the. The comparison uh, of fans' uh, emotional state with a losing team, the comparison to the uh, the Kubler-Ross five stages of dying, and the the idea that that's really not the appropriate one. The, the more appropriate comparison is uh, breaking up with somebody that you've had a romance with. Right, right. Um, that's a, that's an excellent chapter. I really uh, really like that chapter. Um, one of the things that they talk about is how. Uh, they they make a, a tie-in with a study in mice about um, social defeat and found that if a if a mouse was defeated, he um, came back much better if he was with others who were um, in the same in the same situation. And that might explain something of how we uh, we rebound as fans because we're among other fans who are kind of sharing our misery. Whereas if we were all alone in our misery, we actually might not come back, or we might be less likely to come back. And, and root for the team again. But there's kind of this social context where we're suffering together, and that uh, that helps us out a, a great deal. 
So misery does love company. That's the implication. The book is Your Brain on Cubs, edited by Dan Gordon. It's been fun talking to you. Thanks very much. Thank you, Steve. For more on the Dana Foundation, just go to Dana.org. They just released some interesting info about the effect of the arts on cognitive development. Next up, we pay a lot more attention to batting averages than to fielding numbers. Shane Jensen is a statistician at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School who is trying to come up with ways to better quantify what defensive players are accomplishing in baseball. We talked in Boston at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in February. Talking to Shane Jensen, good to talk to you today. Oh, great to be here, great to be here. So you, uh, you're trying to develop uh, ways to really get a handle on defensive performance in baseball. It's, it's a lot easier to do statistics on offense and be confident of them. What, what's the challenge in doing the defensive statistics? Well, offensive, uh, offensive statistics are easier to sort of quantify and tabulate just because, you know, there's a discrete number of outcomes to every at bat. So, I mean, you're talking about sort of categorical data that, that you can sort of tabulate and analyze, uh, you know, with, with high accuracy. Fielding is a much more difficult because you're talking about players moving around on a continuous surface of play. And so you have to be a lot more clever about how you actually model uh, that and, and a large part of that is you know trying to get kind of high resolution data that maps balls in play to uh, to to specific points in the field. And what specific kind of things have you done to try to address that challenge? So we we again we we take advantage of uh, currently available high resolution data and essentially we use smooth probability curves to es- essentially estimate the probability of a fielder making a play you know as a function of the sort of distance he has to travel and 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 other variables velocity of the ball hit um, to try and kind of actually model the the, fir- the surface of the field with with a smooth probability function for making an out you're a respectable statistician why do you uh, why do you spend so much time on something that some people might consider to be trivial well, I, well, the first thing is, I mean, I'm a baseball fan, and so it's for me this is hardly even seems like work. But also, actually, as a as a statistician, it's you know it's it's a complicated enough problem that there's a lot of kind of interesting novel statistical methodology that's actually grown out of this project. And so we're we we've we've been uh, able to sort of harness harness a lot of kind of advanced statistical techniques to to do our estimation. And and I think there will be actually some you know we'll, we'll be hoping to publish a, a couple statistical manuscripts on this research as well. So it's of academic interest as well as sort of sports interest. These kind of methodologies could really come in handy for people who are confronted with dealing with large data sets. So who else might wind up taking advantage of the development of these kinds of systems? Well, I mean, anytime you're talking about sort of a spa- you know, modeling something spatially. So we use two-dimensional spatial models for these, for these players. And I mean, you know, I can, I mean, things that come to mind, I mean, environmental science is that there's a lot of two-dimensional spatial modeling, disease, you know, modeling disease outbreaks and stuff like that. There's a lot of two-dimensional modeling as well. So there's many different sort of scientific fields where I think methods like these are, are being used already. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that we can contribute a little bit to the methodology for those fields as well. Some people think that uh, defense is is economically undervalued, that you can get just as much bang for the buck with a a low-priced defensive specialist as you do with a higher-priced offensive leader. So what, what do you think about that? Well, certainly, I mean, you know, I mean, again, hitting, hitting is a much, is a bigger component of the game than fielding in general. But I do think that, you know, when you're looking for, for, to, to fill up your roster and you're looking to sort of save, you know, a few, if you're looking to increase your sort of run, run production, uh, for, for your team, 
you might be better off, I mean, you might be able to get a fielder that saves you five runs per season uh, cheaper than you would a hitter that contributes an extra five runs per season. And I think what's right now stopping general managers from doing this as a general strategy, if they're not doing it already, is that there are, you know, is again, they'd be reliant on sort of an accurate estimation of the, how that fielding performance, which hopefully is one of the things we kind of bring to the table. Who's the most important player on the field defensively? Center fielder is uh, comes up as sort of the highest, uh, sort of highest importance. You know, really, uh, a top the top center fielders can save their teams up to like twenty runs over average over an entire season. And I think that's a function not just of you know a, a large number of balls being hit to center field, but also you know we we weep by run consequence. So when you miss a ball, when you make a mistake in center field, that's a double or a triple. It's a very consequential event. Shortstop's an example of one that is also important defensively, but not as because. Um, you know, there's a high number of balls that are hit to shortstop, but almost every single one of the P- shortstop grounders that are missed is, is, is just ends up as a single. So more more balls are hit there, but of lower consequence. Who's the least important defensive player? First baseman. First baseman came up as the least important defensive player, and again, that's large in large part due to just a low, very low frequency of balls hit to first base. It, it, when you watch a game, and the the first baseman is. A decent player, you don't notice him, but when he's bad, you really do notice him a lot. But is, but statistically, it's just not that big a deal. You should concentrate on the other members of the defensive alignment. Well, I think, I mean, one, one thing, first basemen are involved in a lot of plays, even if they're not f- uh, fielding. And I think, to a certain extent, when a first baseman makes a mistake, it can, it can often be, it can look spectacular. And so there's a perception there that it was a very important mistake. But it, overall, certainly there's less balls hit to first baseman, so they're, you know, quantitatively not as, not as important. So your, um, your uh, methodology does not examine whether the first baseman makes the, the, fields the difficult throw by the, by the shortstop. No, that's right. So the throw, that, that type of first baseman, as far as you know, whether or not they field throws, that that's not measured. We're, we're measuring first baseman just on their ability to actually field uh, ground balls hit to them. And uh, what was the most surprising thing that that uh, your data analysis <laughs> led you to? Well, I mean, one, one, one of the big surprises that we saw, I mean, and this actually isn't a surprise if you've worked with other fielding evaluations, but Derek Jeter pops up as one as the worst shortstop in the major leagues by our method. Um, and again, that, that's something that is consistent between different fielding evaluations. You are, we should say you're a Red Sox fan. I am a Red Sox fan. I, I'll, I'll put in right now that Manny Ramirez also comes up as poor for, just for the sake of a fair and balanced assessment. Uh, but Derek Jeter does come up as one of the, uh, worst, sh- uh, shortstops in the majors. And one of the best shortstops in the majors by our estimation is actually Alex Rodriguez because we have data from, you know, 02 and 03 when he was still with Texas. Um, and so, the Yankees seem to actually have the worst shortstop uh, play in the major leagues playing at shortstop and the and the, one of the best playing at third base in deference to him. Well, uh, it's been fun talking to you, and I appreciate your time, even though uh, any any uh, Yankee fan is going to think this is all bunk and hokey pokey, but I'm, I'm, sure that, I'm sure you're right in a lot of ways. Thank you very much. For more on this research, Google Shane Jensen which will take you to his homepage, at which you can find media coverage of his work, including a New York Post story that quotes Derek Jeter and former Yankee shortstop Gene Michael, who calls the research, quote, a bunch of baloney, end quote. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, baseball features a lot of guys spitting. Researchers have now identified all the proteins found in human spit. 
Story two involves beer. It's estimated that some 24,500 gallons of beer are lost annually in Great Britain in drinkers' beards and mustaches. Story three, how much you exercise often depends in large part on what kind of neighborhood you live in. And story four, throwing from the slightly raised pitcher's mound puts less strain on the pitcher's arm than throwing on a flat surface does. Time's up. Story one is true. The protein components of human spit have been completely characterized, and we have 1,116 distinct proteins in our saliva. The info could make it possible to produce numerous new saliva-based diagnostic tests, which would be easier to deal with than blood tests. For more, check out the March 25th story at the Siam website titled, Really, U.S. Researchers Create Protein Map of Human Spit. Story two is true. Guinness estimates that some 24,500 gallons of beer get absorbed in drinkers' facial hair each year. That's based on beer sales in Great Britain and the assumption that each pint is lifted 10 times with 0.56 milliliters lost with each sip. And story three is true. Your neighborhood often winds up dictating your exercise level. That's according to research done at Ohio State University. The study was actually performed in Chicago and found that, not surprisingly, if a neighborhood was considered unsafe, fewer people took part in outdoor activities, and women were much more discouraged from getting any outdoor exercise in such neighborhoods than men were. The research was published in the journal Urban Studies. All of which means that story four about the mound easing the strain on the pitcher's arm is totally bogus, because a study found that the mound puts more stress on the arm. The study was led by orthopedic surgeon William Rash, team physician for the Milwaukee Brewers, and was presented at a joint session of the Major League Baseball Team Physicians Association and Professional Baseball Athletic Trainer Society during the Major League Baseball winter meetings. Rash analyzed the motions of college and major league pitchers on the official mound, two shorter mounds, and flat ground. Because of the relative positions of the landing foot and the shoulder, more torque is put on the shoulder when pitching from the mound. Pitchers recovering from an injury may thus be better off throwing on flat ground. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Siam podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam dot com and check out the website for the latest science news, blogs, and opinion, and the hot topics section. Also, check out the new book Snake Jazz by geneticist and former major league pitcher Dave Baldwin, who was our guest on the April fourth, two thousand seven podcast. For one thing, you'll learn about the very disturbing Simpsons paradox in statistics, whereby you can have a higher batting average than I do every year. But my lifetime batting average can still be higher than yours. Check out Dave Baldwin at SnakeJazz.com for Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American. I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Earth is a 